You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. Welcome to episode number 48 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast. We broadcast on Middle Earth Network Radio as well as on the Star Wars Report website, StarWarsReport.com. Our episodes are also available on our own Facebook page, which you can find at Facebook.com slash SWBeyondFilms. But enough about how you got here, let's get the show started. I am one of your hosts, Nathan P. Butler, of, among other things, from the Star Wars Library, that video series you should check out on YouTube. With me, as always, my Star Wars companion and the defender of the EU, Mr. Mark Herleman. Hey, Mark. Hey, me and Whistler are once again glad to be here. I've got him kind of hard at work holding the uh, the dam at bay, as it were. My studio is still flooding, as me and you were talking about just a minute ago. Uh, it's been fun. I'm still surrounded by things. It's actually more encroaching now than it was before because I pulled things so far away from the walls to kind of assess the situation. But I think I have a game plan, so hopefully here in the next week or two or three... God, I hope it don't take that long, but hopefully I'll have things back to normal again and things won't be so chaotic on my end. Always good to have a game plan, although as we were talking about also before the show, I'm sure it'll show up uh, in this episode. It seems as though the topic that we're talking about this time is slowly revealing that there was less of a game plan in place for the uh, Star Wars folks this time around than there usually is, because we were just discussing uh, some of the continuity things that are popping up now that we have set dates for certain things in the era that we're going to be discussing this time around, and how it's not all necessarily jiving 100%. Jive talking. Hey, uh, speaking of jive things, our Annihilation Contest has a winner, Forrest Bizzotte. I'm probably not saying your last name right, because I'm really bad when it comes to pronouncing names. But... He is of Sith Empire Radio podcast fame, and he uh, happened to be our random winner there. We had quite a few people in there. We did have an issue with our email, so again, we apologize for the uh, inconvenience therein, but most of you, it looks like you guys got it back in there. There was quite a list of uh, applicants, and uh, congratulations, Forrest. You will have your copy of Annihilation being sent out to you uh, shortly. We'll be sending you a message to get your contact information and all that. And with that, uh, we're going to move into our main discussion. Here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions, questions that have bothered you a long time, or the simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. In this episode, we're going to take a look at the recently released The Old Republic Annihilation by Drew Carpetian. Please consider this your spoiler warning, boys, girls, and fans of around the galaxy, because here we go. Let me add to that spoiler warning to say that there are some things that we're going to talk about here as far as how this connects because this is meant to happen right after the game's storylines for the most part. There will be some things that we'll be discussing that are somewhat spoilerish in terms of big concepts, not small nuances, from different storylines within the Old Republic MMO, and things that pop up in the Tor Encyclopedia and whatnot, and uh, I guess the Lost Sons as well. So this is sort of a generalized spoiler warning here, not just for Annihilation, but hopefully if you were going to check out the other stuff, you've already done so by now. Yeah. Now... Yeah, that, I guess, gets to the, the heart of where we're going next is the quick, where does this fit? I mean, I, we've mentioned it in our last episode with the comics and stuff, how all this stuff's going to kind of tie in together. So we'll do a real quick rundown again. And Nathan, you've been playing the game, so you kind of have more idea of how this is or isn't kind of lining up. 
Right. Basically what you've got is you've got the Treaty of Coruscant itself gets signed in 3,653 years prior to A New Hope. When that gets signed, essentially the Great Galactic War goes into a sort of Cold War type of state, and that's when we get that comic Thread of Peace. We won't deal with the other comics, just uh, or at least we won't deal with uh, the next set of comics, Blood of the Empire, because that's prior to, about 25 years prior to it. But 3,653, booyah, there you go, Thread of Peace. Uh, the story we think of as the Old Republic kind of starts off, because that was our first glimpse into that era. Then you jump it about 10 years, and 10 years after that, approximately, uh, 3,643 BBY, at least according to the Essential Reader's Companion, we get the novel Fatal Alliance. And Fatal Alliance almost brings things to a head, but you've got basically Republic and Sith characters who are all fighting against a similar threat, as opposed to it being them fighting each other and reigniting the war. So at that point, the war is still a Cold War. Then presumably, sometime between a year and two years after that, we get the Lost Sons comic series. Now, the Lost Sons is supposed to be taking place concurrent to the different class storylines that take place in the Old Republic MMO. That appears to have been changed by Annihilation and by the Old Republic Encyclopedia. Get to that in a moment. So then about... Uh, a year to two years, sometime in between there, after that, we get to the year 3,640 BBY, and that apparently is when the Old Republic game takes place within presumably uh, the bulk of that year, uh, going up to just maybe a few months before the end of the year, and then after that you have a very, very brief gap after all eight of the class storylines are over for the Old Republic MMO, and you get Annihilation. And Annihilation essentially is the end cap of it, wrapping up loose ends from the Lost Sons, some loose ends from the game. It's sort of the the lead out for this era in most senses. The reason I say that there's some, some confusion here is that the game was originally said to take place between a, a gap of basically from when Fatal Alliance ends up until what is now thought of as the beginning of Annihilation, that it would have been about a three-year time span at least in which the game's events that take at least months were taking place. And that made sense, then, to have Drew Carpetian in Annihilation mentioning that the events of the Lost Sons are somewhere a little less than two years prior to the uh, Annihilation, because then that means that it's smack dab within that three-year time frame. Except now, the Old Republic Encyclopedia has pinned down the start of the game to the same year as Annihilation. And, in, and that is a, a, a date that's been pinned down for Annihilation, not just by the Essential Reader's Companion, but by Drew Carpetian himself. And in doing so, they've not only shortened the span of the game for all these events to take place, they've also managed to put the Lost Sons prior to the game now instead of concurrent with it. And that does cause a little bit of issues, because in the Lost Sons, uh, we, we mentioned last time around that they find all those different super weapons, right, that are, they're using the Sun Razor to create. Yeah. Uh, the Emperor's Shadow, the Undying, the Ascendant Spear that plays a role in Annihilation here, the Silencer, and the Gauntlet. The Gauntlet actually is a super weapon that you go after that's being commanded by General Racton when you're playing as the leader of Havoc Squad, as the trooper class in the Old Republic MMO. And yet somehow, what, a year, maybe almost two years prior to the game, here's Theron Shan bringing news of it, and the Lost Sons, as I flip here, saying to his boss, Marcus, uh, For starters, I've been reviewing the data on the Sunraiser superweapons, this one called the Gauntlet. We need to take a closer look. Well, apparently they don't take a closer look anytime in the near future because they don't wind up actually going into it until the time of the game that's now quite a bit later. Not only that, 
But his boss mentions at the end in that same scene, that same conversation, he says, you've seen the files on Darth Angrel, the Spec Force incident, etc., etc., etc. But this is a knife uh, that cuts right into the guts of the Treaty of Coruscant. Problem is, the Darth Angrel thing and the Spec Force incident both take place within the game. And now, they haven't happened yet as of that conversation. It certainly seems to me that, the, that as we were talking about last time, the vagueness that they used made this a little bit difficult to make it all fit together once they got to write it. We also have Jace Malcolm now as the recently appointed Supreme Commander of the Republic Armed Forces in Annihilation. It must have been very recent, because in the game, it's still Supreme Commander Rans, at least having seen all the Republic storylines now. I haven't gone into any of the Imperial ones yet. And in the game, we have uh, Jack Carden being the founder and the one who uh, develops Havoc Squad. Until he eventually, after events on Ando Prime, where essentially the Republic leaves Havoc Squad to die because they they can't send in enough reinforcements. They don't have the financial and the military wherewithal to actually send reinforcements. They just kind of leave them. Once he gets back from that, they manage to survive. He says, screw it, and leaves Havoc Squad in the command of his XO, Heron Tavis, who also showed up in the Threat of Peace comics. And that kind of springboards into all the stuff of the Trooper storyline. There's never any mention of Jace Malcolm being there prior to Jet Carden. And yet, he's with Havoc Squad in the Hope trailer, in the flashbacks that we see in Annihilation, and the Old Republic Encyclopedia then tries to explain this away by saying, well, actually, he was with, uh, he, he was with Havoc Squad, but then whenever he left, he put it in the command of Jet Carden, so that he could then focus more on the division as a whole, as opposed to just Havoc Squad before he eventually becomes, of course, Supreme Commander here. But it, it's, it really feels as though they were tripping over themselves. There was so much backstory being created and yet so much vague chronology involved that in the process of trying to put this together, they've still given us a good story, but we really have to kind of, you know, watch with one eye closed because of how often it is that it seems like facts trip over themselves because of lack of coordination uh, amongst these projects. See, and, and for me, it's one of those things that it, it just confuses me. And I, I'm sure for you, it's more of a frustration, you know, that, that level of confusion that I get because I, I'm not quick to catch on those little dates, but it makes me wonder though, could, could the lost sons now may maybe be a longer story? Like maybe the travel time and, and, and Theron's time, you know, at the location he was at inside the Sith area, it took maybe closer to a year for him to get back. I mean, I mean maybe I, something like that. It might be possible, but in annihilation, it's not necessarily, I mean, it's two things. They refer back to his mission that wound up finding the Sunraiser as being about two years ago, a little under two years ago. They also refer to the same thing as to when he met and when he left Tefeth. So for all those things to all be happening at the same time reference, they have to have been fairly compressed, I would think. I don't think there's any way that without them kind of coming in and fudging some of the references that they can make that work. My guess is that if there's anything they wind up doing to, to change these dates is they'll turn around for the old, the, the uh, encyclopedia and say, actually, that's telling you when it ends, not when it begins, but I doubt it. Or they'll come in and say, well, those few references in Annihilation, they were just off in terms of time, and it really was that The Lost Sons is taking place during the game itself. Um, or they're just going to probably do what my guess is they're going to do, and that is just simply leave it, leave it confusing, leave it unclear, and just pretend that nobody notices. Well, you have to also wonder if, if this also plays into the gaming aspect of it. I mean, you know, KOTOR 1 and 2, 
there were so many options that they had to come back later and tell us who the canical main character was, what the sex was, what the species was, what the events they did were. And, you know, you know, we were talking about how, how you've been watching the timeline videos and stuff. Now I've been trying, I I've just been finding them in, in bits and pieces. And there have been some where it's been the same kind of cutscenes, but they play out a little bit differently depending on who was there and what they said. And so mm -hmm. I, I wonder if that, if they're trying to leave some room as to which story arc in the game is going to be the official one. Makes you wonder if they don't even know, which which all the way around it makes you wonder, you know, did they not know? Was a lot right. of this, were they not throwing these dates out? Did they, did they, were they sitting on them? I mean, when it feels like they dropped the ball this hard, you definitely want to, to have that feeling of like, let's raise the torches and the pickforks and find out who's screwing this up. I mean, because it's not like they didn't have time to get it right. And I think that's the frustrating right. part. <laughs> what kind of makes me wonder, because in the game, you don't get a lot of exact time references. You know, 10 years ago this happened, 15 years ago this happened. Uh, at best, it's, you know, about a decade ago or a little over a decade ago, the Treaty of Coruscant happened. But for the most part, you don't get a lot of date references in the main class storylines, except while you're playing through these different storylines, you have these different quests and side things you can do with members of your team. As you go, you build more team members as part of your, your crew on your ship, or Havoc Squad as the case may be. And in their storylines, there's a lot of stuff about that. Like Eric Jorgen, who's one of the members of Havoc Squad, he's actually the first member of Havoc Squad you get as you're rebuilding Havoc Squad and such in the game. Um, he refers to being in the field for seven years and being at the Academy for four years prior to that, which gives us some pinning down of dates. And then when you look at the Tor Encyclopedia, that also includes ages for a lot of these characters and references to things in their lives. You can finally start to put together when certain things in these characters' lives happened in terms of actual year dates. And I'm wondering when it finally is done, when I finally get done looking through all the class storylines and all the companion storylines and putting these dates together, are the dates in the encyclopedia still going to hold up? And my guess is, since that's being made by people who are working on the game itself, it probably will hold up. But you got to wonder just how much they did or didn't provide uh, otherwise. I mean, we didn't even have a date for Fatal Alliance, really, until, what, the Essential Reader's Companion? I mean, that was produced years ago, and yet it was left up in the air until recently. So, yeah. I don't know. It just uh, On the plus side, though, as we said in the last episode, this doesn't preclude them from being able to tell really good stories. And I would say that Annihilation was quite a good tale, especially since it's focusing on Theron Shan, or Sean, as the case may be. They pronounce it Sean at some point in the game. Um, because, as I said in the last episode, I really, really did not like the character of Theron in The Lost Sons. He felt very cardboard cutout to me, and yet this book gives me all kinds of appreciation for the character and makes going back and seeing sequences out of The Lost Sons feel more poignant because he's a character that now we actually have some connection to. Very much, I guess, like the way that I didn't really feel much of a connection to Kara Holt in the novel of Knight Errant, and yet now I would assume going back and reading it, having read all three of the Knight Errant storylines, I'd probably be more into the character and get more out of it, that Revenge of the Sith Stover effect kind of thing going on. Yeah. Well, that was going to be my next question was the tie-in value and if it worked. And and I, I'm in the same boat. I really think if you're going to read Annihilation by itself, it it, it, it could be okay. Um, I don't think you're going to get a great read out of it. I mean, I think it'll be a fun read. I think you will enjoy yourself. But I think if you've read the comic, you know, The Lost Sons, you're going to get the most out of this. I, I think for me, it was very satisfactory in that regards. Um I liked Theron in the comic. 
Uh, I think for me, the character that I didn't like in the comic was Tefeth. Mainly it was because she had that whole lion's mane going on with her Leclu. It was like, whoa, was she trying to compensate for something? Now, let me ask you a question then, because you mentioned the whole tie-in value thing. I would agree. I think you're going to like Annihilation by itself. If you have any interest in this era, it's a it's a really good tale. And it's a story just like Scoundrels that we'll be looking at in the future that doesn't focus around a Force-using character. And that makes it such a breath of fresh air. Very much like uh, Agent of the Empire we're going to talk about in our next episode. Uh, it's not the standard Sith or Jedi-type main character. I think anybody could enjoy this book as long as they had a general understanding, at least, of the basics of this era, I think they'll get a lot more out of it if they've read The Lost Sons and vice versa. Do you think, though, that you may get less out of this than some other readers would if you haven't played the game or if you haven't at least watched cutscenes and stuff from the game? Does that lack of what happens basically between the beginning of the game and The Lost Sons and the Cold War stuff and the reigniting of the the war in and of itself, which happens around the third act or so of every class storyline, um, and then what happens in this book, does that gap in knowledge wind up impairing the ability to understand anything from it, to follow anything, to get much out of the book? I mean, what effect, well, if any, does it have? I want to say no, because, I mean, I haven't played the game. I've I, Yes, I've watched a few little videos, but for the most part, the only videos that I had going into this were uh, Tor... Uh, the, the Hope trailer, Tor's Deceived trailer, and the uh, other one where the uh, Sith show up on Korriban and they had the uh, the Cad Bane looking human. Uh, can't remember the name of that one. <laughs> but right, which, those... which, by the way, which by the way, for those who didn't know, I don't know if I mentioned this in the last episode. Those are the opening cutscenes of different class storylines for the game itself. So those were trailers, oh. but they're actually the only cutscenes that look that good for the game. Oh really? Mm-hmm. Ah. Yeah, you know, I found that most... out when I tried Jedi Consular. It played, um, which one did it play? I think it played the Korriban return thing for me right Makes before sense. I tried playing Consular. It, yeah, I mean, I remember when those first came out, though, it was like, man, they didn't do cartoons like this, you know? I mean, that, it kind of bums me to find out those were the only three in the game. I was kind of looking forward to more of those coming down the road. But I, I really, I don't think that you needed it. I mean, I, I think about Fatal Alliance and how confused I was when that came out, you know. And and now when this one came out, I, I feel like at least it, its placement stuff and, and with what I had seen in the game and stuff made sense. I think I was more confused because elements of the game were already over. Uh, some big spoiler warnings here that that the Emperor may have been dead or may have disappeared. They don't quite know. They're assuming he's dead. Uh, Darth Malgus is dead, but they don't tell you the 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 whys, wheres, or whats and hows. And Mm-hmm. I, I was kind of irked by that. I kind of wanted to know, and I had this feeling that we're never going to find out unless we play the game, and that kind of bothers me. I hope well, I'll tell down you the that... road they'll do something where they give you, like like with KOTOR, you know, the definitive, like, these events are the events that happened. Yeah, we had like 58 events that could have happened, but these 12 are the ones that did happen. And even if it's not even in a book, but some kind of reference that's in word form, I would love to see that down the road. Well, that's where the tour encyclopedia comes in. I mean, it gives you brief summaries of the three main acts of each of the class storylines, but they don't give you a whole lot of of detail. I will tell you that it is during the Jedi Knight storyline, where as you become the hero of Tython, so to speak, which is the nickname this character tends to carry, that is when you do wind up, uh, you hook back up with Scourge, uh, Darth Scourge, right? The one from the Revan novel. And together, Uh um, you are the individual he saw in the vision at the end of Revan, and you together are going after 
the emperor, but it but it leaves the thing open where essentially the belief is the emperor isn't dead. The emperor is essentially rebuilding his power and binding his time. So in theory, they could keep this game going as long as they wanted to, just constantly have it be almost like Palpatine in Dark Empire, where each time there seems to be a defeat, the defeat doesn't actually end with an outright defeat that we can say, you know, game over, uh, mission is over. Now, I will say that um, I, I'm glad to hear that it doesn't seem as though it affects the reading of it, because this is a really fun book to read, and yet I was afraid that people would be looking at this if they don't have the game knowledge and be avoiding it on the shelves, which would be a real shame given the quality of Annihilation. Yeah, I definitely think this is one of the, aside from Deceive, this is probably the best book in this era so far. But on, on terms of the Emperor, would you say, because what you're saying about how the game could continue with what's going on with him and what I've I've gleamed from Annihilation, does he kind of seem like he's got an ability very much akin to Ablis? I mean, it sounds like he's oh. able to shift bodies and therefore can never quite be defeated, or at least they're not sure if he's been defeated because he could, in sense, jump bodies again. I don't know how that works, but there's definitely, you know, from the Lost Sons, you have that feeling of, okay, he's got a, a legion of host bodies to jump into. And I recall seeing one cutscene where a guy was talking about how he's the voice of the Emperor and right. no one was kind of believing him. I think that was the Darth Thanaton uh, trailer, the one that I well, saw with him in it. Well, what he's got is he's got the ch the children of the emperor that we see in Blood of the Empire, and there's basically these. He has this ability to reach out into the minds of these specially prepared individuals, and they essentially become conduits for him. Um, I won't give away who it is, but there's a big revelation in the I think it was a Jedi Consular storyline of who actually is the head of these children of the emperor, the main one, uh, and it kind of turns a lot of stuff on its head for that particular storyline. Um, in that sense, it allows essentially for this idea of he can jump bodies, but I'm not sure if, you know, by jumping bodies, it, it can happen without that main body being there. Essentially, if I remember correctly, he's defeated but not killed at the end of the of that part of the Jedi Knight storyline, which leaves the possibility that he is essentially going to somehow recover from his wounds, like like his body is not recovered or something like that. Something something nice and vague. Hmm. Uh, to make it all make sense. But you're right, there are references to that, and I'm still waiting to see the Malgus stuff, because I'm assuming that must take place within some of the Imperial storylines, because those are the four that I haven't tackled yet. I've checked out the Smuggler, Jedi Knight, Jedi Consular, and Trooper, all of which are the Republic side, and none of them uh, deal with Malgus really at all. I mean, they deal with General Racton or Darth Angrel. I mean, they've got their main villains, um, but Malgus doesn't wind up playing a role in those, so I'm very curious to see those when I get to it. Um, the premise here, for those who haven't checked out Annihilation yet, the premise here is that uh, the war has ramped up again. We had the Great Galactic War that essentially went into a Cold War with the Treaty of Coruscant. Now, thanks to events in the second act of most of the class storylines, things have ramped up again. Whether it's the destruction of the superweapon gauntlet from the Lost Sons and General Rakton starting to invade various worlds, or maybe it's the defeat of certain children of the Emperor. I mean, depending on which storyline you look at, there are different precipitating events. But, but presumably, all these things are coming to a head all around the same time, and the Great Galactic War starts again. You might even call it the Second Great Galactic War, as some fan resources like Wikipedia have taken to calling it. And in this new, restarted, hot Great Galactic War, we have about a third of the game's content, as they're fighting in the war, essentially gives their side an upper hand, or gives their side an advantage, at least briefly, and the game essentially drops off, although there's new content being added from time to time, and Annihilation picks up. 
At this point, Jace Malcolm is the new Supreme Commander. We've got Theron Shan back as an SIS agent. And one of those super weapons that was left from the Lost Sons, the Ascendant Spear, this massive battleship, is sort of the key to the Imperials possibly being able to win this war. Only with them in disarray after some of the events of the game, it gives the Republic a chance to maybe strike at it and give the Republic an advantage, take away that major weapon. And it brings in Master Nos Dural, who of course is the one that did the narration of the, the timeline videos and such. He's also the guy uh, who we wind up seeing as the journal writer. If you bought the collector's edition of the game, there's that journal of Master Nos Dural that gives a lot of background to the game. Um, he comes in because it turns out that the Sith in charge of the Ascendant Spear, Darth Karad, used to be his own apprentice who went undercover with the Empire and wound up getting, I guess, a little bit too deep in there. So it takes a lot of these characters that we have seen before and draws them together into this nice culminating tale where you don't have to worry that, I guess, the game is still happening. I think that's one good thing about the game already having wrapped up at that point, or at least presumably wrapping up, because now we can have a story that really pushes things forward, and it doesn't seem like they have to worry about adding in new game content. This can be a game-changer without needing the game itself, no pun intended, yeah. um, to be somehow altered to make it work. It, it makes for a cool story, but again, not much in the way of Jedi. Nostaral is like the partner character for part of the story, but it really does focus on Theron, and almost a, I don't want to say it has a James Bond kind of vibe, but it <laughs> almost feels to me like what we get with the uh, Havoc Squad storyline in the game, in that it's, okay, you must accomplish this objective, then this objective, which opens up this other objective, so now do this, this, and this, now the Republic is ready for its strike, <laughs> now you carry out your strike, but for at least part of it, you are alone. It has that same feel of it, which I really didn't didn't catch on to when I actually first read it. I only caught on to it after watching the Trooper storyline here in the last few days. It makes for uh, a heck of a story. See, I felt like Theron Sean was uh, the Ethan Hunt Mission Impossible style character. Uh, the book, it felt like there were, it almost had too much going on at one point where it kind of seemed like a drug on. But I recognize that that is for people like me that haven't played the game. It was the buildup. I mean, it starts off, he goes to a hut world and he's like doing, he's on vacation, but he ends up running across a mission of uh, Republic slaves being sold by the huts and gets involved and ends up getting his hand slapped. So he gets sent over when he goes back to Coruscant he's in the analytics department and they they uncover all this stuff with the Ascendant Sphere and he's doctoring the records that are being sent to Jace Malcolm who's now the Supreme Commander so that's how Malcolm recognizes his name and so he throws that name out there as like I want this guy on the mission and it, it worked really well I mean I remember when I was reading it going man how many missions? But but like you said, it's like you go, you do this one mission, it leads to the next one, it leads to the next one. That's what we had going on. I mean, he gets teamed up with with Nostaral, and that felt very much lethal weapon. Like Sean was uh was Riggs and Dural was Murtog. You know, I mean, they were going on their mission, they go to get the, the black cipher, which is in its essence is the decryption machine that the Sith are using that can't be done. And just the way that that mission alone played out was a great read. And then we still had half the book still to go. I was like, wow, this is actually turning out to be kind of fun. The reactions and the relationship that was going on between those two, I think for me, that's what made this book a really fun read, but especially by the time you get to the end and there's like this ongoing running gag about clothes. I was just, I, I was dying. I thought that was so funny, but Sean, he, he, had these really cool moments where he was able to use his technology, his gadgetry, and and I kept going back to to you know Mission Impossible. I mean, I, I was thinking the same thing with 007. You know, you have the Born. There's all these new spy movies out there that you can afflict it or apply it to. And I, I was just like, man, 
this is really just I, I don't know. I couldn't I couldn't lay my hand on it. I kept going back to Ethan Hunt. He just felt the most like Ethan Hunt, you know? Yeah. But it was it definitely had that spy on spy feeling. And I would definitely say that, that there have been comparisons made of this being sort of like the 007 type of thing. I'm not sure that I would necessarily go with that. Um Unless we're yeah, talking, no, our next episode I think is more 007, and that and that's exactly why the fact that we have Agent of the Empire that is purposely more 007. I would almost say that if you were going to compare, because I don't want people to get a mis- misunderstanding of how the character works, he is a special agent, but don't think, you know, Brosnan, Connery, Lazenby, et cetera, et cetera, that era of James Bond here. Um, he's taken a lot more seriously. Than that, he's almost like a Daniel Craig type of James Bond, or like you said, probably the better comparison is Ethan Hunt in the Mission Impossible stuff. Because when he gets hurt, he actually gets hurt, and he stays yeah. hurt. Like there's a, the, uh, there's one point early on that it kind of drives it drives this point home. I actually remember when I was reading the scene. I'm sitting. I get uh, allergy serum injections, uh, four shots once a day, one once a month. Um, and when you get those shots, you got to sit there for half an hour before they'll let you leave in case you go into some kind of shock or something like that. Um, so I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I really don't want to be there. I got a headache. I happen to have brought the the uh, advanced review copy that I have of Annihilation, flipped it open. It was I had just started reading. I was maybe only a page in, and I just tore through the first few chapters getting into it. And I got to tell you that the scene that sticks in my mind, I mean, I can literally remember sitting back going, huh. While I was there, I'm sure people looked at me like, what is he reacting to? Did he just get something on his smartphone? Uh, but he's uh, Theron is jumping between buildings, and he reaches out to grab and catch himself, and in the process, he doesn't quite make it, and it screws up his arm. It screws up his shoulder, and that arm is bothering him throughout pretty much the entire rest of this story. It's not one of these things where, oh, he's a Jedi, he can handle it, so whatever happens to him, he's back good to go for the next part of the mission. I mean, he is a regular guy carrying out things that, in some cases, would have to tax a Jedi. But he's got the technology to be able to do it, he's got um, what he needs in terms of the knowledge to be able to do it, and he's not afraid of making contacts and working with people he may not be quite as comfortable dealing with. Like, at one point, having to have contact with his mother, Satil Shan, who he had brief contact with in The Lost Sons, but didn't reveal his true uh, background to. He didn't like bring up the topic of, hey, I realize you're my mom, or anything like that. Um, he has contact with Jace Malcolm, and we get that great uh, Empire Strikes Back type moment that we're going to wind up dealing with here momentarily, I'm sure. Um, but then he also has Tefeth. You know, Tefeth wants little to do with him after the events of the Lost Sons, tells him to stay away, but constantly he's like, can you help me just one more time? Please, just one more time. Please don't shoot me. Con- or he was hiding out and, and helping her, and she didn't even know. I, I love that in the opening Nar- Nar Shadar scenes, where he's in the back of the room, and she comes busting through, and... Like, she has a moment where she's, like, expecting something to be off in the room but doesn't catch on, and it goes out, and he was there. It just took the guy out that would have killed her. It was like, yes! Yeah, he's, like, buried underneath the guy that has fallen on him or whatever. I mean, he he's a regular guy. He's an exceptionally skilled regular guy, but he's not a Jedi. And that, I mean, how many times have we gotten that in recent memory? Most of the time we've had that. I mean, I would even say that this borders on the X-Wing series in the sense that it actually gives us someone whose skill set is not because they're Jedi, and when Jedi do come into play, or the Force comes into play, it is essentially as, I mean, it's either on the the villain side of things, or it's someone who's there as an ally. Like, as much as the X-Wing books focused on Corrin Horn, and his Force use, or, or developing into realizing he has Force potential within those first four books, I would still say that it's not really a Force-based series, because he's only one of many. 
Here we don't have nearly as many characters as, say, a rogue squadron worth of characters, but at the same time, when we get a Force user on the good side, he's there as a partner, and he's not even there for a lot of the scenes that we see because they wind up having to split up at different points. It's a breath of fresh air to me to finally have something where it's saying that, you know what, in order to be skilled and good at your job in Star Wars and make a difference, you don't have to have the Force. You can pursue something the other way. And in his case, it's even more so poignant because when he's being trained by Nagani Zhou, who we saw, of course, pass away in The Lost Sons, uh, the person who had at one point been the master of Satil and was the one who helped take care of him whenever she secretly had him as a child, um, you know, he tried to train Theron in Force use, only to realize that Theron didn't have that potential. So not only is it you're a regular guy, but you can still make a difference, it's you're a regular guy, and despite your heritage, you have no use of the Force now, you must overcome that disappointment, etc., etc., to be able to make a difference. It makes Theron a much more interesting character. Unfortunately, we didn't get much of that with The Lost Sons. It felt very vague and, and cardboard there, but really, Carpetian takes that and runs with it. It's great to see Theron finally become a character that I would like to see show up again instead of one that I didn't want to see again as of Lost Sons. Well, and the bitterness that he had towards the Jedi it was common sense in a sense, if that even makes sense. I mean, he had what I, I feel I would have if I was being raised to, to go into these Jedi paths and then all of a sudden you get rejected. I mean, that sense of rejection there definitely shadowed the way he treated the Jedi and the way he felt about the Jedi. He definitely had some mommy-daddy issues, and I love the way that they played out. But, you know, you, you mentioned the injuries, the shoulder injury, and the fact that that kept playing up was great. But the thing I loved the most was at the end when he got a cramp in his calf while running down a hall and it took him out. I, I mean, I've had cramps in my legs so bad like that. that I, I, I thought that was the funniest scene ever because I have literally felt where it was going to rip the muscle right off my bone like that. I mean, I, I was like doing all I could not to think too hard on it because I was afraid I was going to give myself a, a cramp because it was just a perfectly written moment. And I was just like, man, oh, how funny is that? Because he's just like charging along and out of nowhere comes this leg cramp and just takes him out. And you're just like, <laughs> yes. And there's a lot of little moments like that. And you know, you, you mentioned Nostral. When his character gets involved, he, he kind of has the, the, the serenity about him, you know, and they, they play off each other so well. I, again, I, I can only liken it to uh, Lethal Weapon, the way that those two played together. It was like there was like a little ribbing going on, but for the most part, they really genuinely enjoyed being around each other. When we see Dural give himself up to Carrot and her group to kind of uh, get the Ascendant Sphere where they need it to be when they've smuggled themselves onto the ship, he ends up getting to a point where he gets captured and he's being tortured by a device that Darth Mechanis made. Or Mechanis, I, I can't remember exactly how you say her name, but from the comics, she created this device that, in a lot of ways, it kind of reminded me of, uh, shoot, it's a Vong weapon. The Embrace of Pain? Yes, yes, the Embrace of Pain. That, that, the way that thing worked, man, it, it kind of reminded me of that, but like with a holodeck type feel. I mean, they were able to, to basically make everything happen in your mind and you think it is happening to you, but your body stays perfectly sound. So basically, they're just breaking your mind, making you think you're being physically beaten. Like, I recall one of the first ones they did was they made him like, it, it seemed like his body was expanding inside, like you've been exposed to a vacuum or something. And I mean, just the different tortures they were doing to him and and the, the little things he was saying to himself, you know, and he's like, you know, stick to the force, trust in the force. Oh, man, I, I, I that moment when that scene started to play out, my respect for that character grew exponentially. 
Not to mention the fact that, you know, it opens up the door again for that running gag that you mentioned about the clothes, because, of course, while he's in there, at least for part of the time, Nosferatu doesn't have much of his clothing. And there's a couple instances I really kind of sat back and felt as though, you know, is this... We, we've talked before about how Star Wars perhaps needs more female writers and maybe strong female characters again, uh, sort of balancing that back out. We did an episode about that a while back, and... It, it kind of made me sit back and wonder, maybe this is a book that's finally being written with a target audience, in some cases being the women, because instead of having scantily clad Twi'leks or something like that everywhere where it tends to only be the women who are scantily clad, uh, and or they go into a casino and it's nothing but scantily clad women or something like that, instead, both of our main characters on this final mission at some point wind up basically running around in their underwear. And it winds up being, I mean, it makes sense within the span of the story, and it makes for some good jokes along the way, but part of me had to say, you know what, I wonder if he is sort of purposely leaning towards a demographic that usually doesn't get that kind of, here, let's put this mental image in your head type of of thing. I mean, I don't know that it was some, I mean, it fits within the story, so it makes me wonder, you know, was that something that was just there for the story and for the humor, or was he purposely thinking about demographics of readership when he was? It certainly isn't promoted as, you know, Theron Chan as a sex symbol of any kind or anything like that, <laughs> but it kind of it kind of yelled out to me that maybe this is something that's underrepresented in Star Wars, not that I necessarily want to see, you know, Star Wars Episode 7, Chippendales in Space, or something like that. <laughs> um, but just, you know, there, there is a tendency that when we see scantily clad characters, they tend to be women. Or when we read about them and it puts the mental image in, they tend to be women. In this case, it was Theron and Nosdural. And, I mean, I'm not sure what a scantily clad Keldor looks like. Not sure that I really want to know. Um, but it made for some some great humor within the book. Yeah, and, you know, you mentioned about, about how there were a cast of other characters. We have some flashback scenes that really build up Satiel and Jace and how their relationship came to be. And I like the flashbacks. I mean, there was one where uh, she had sensed the hate and darkness inside Jace before, though it had taken the impending birth of their child to make her confront him about it. What she hadn't realized was that the same potential for hate and anger lurked inside her as well. Her feelings for Jace were too strong. If something happened to him, she feared all her Jedi training wouldn't be able to save her from seeking vengeance against the empire with her child. She knew it would be even worse. This path leads to the dark side, she said. And in that moment of clarity, Satiel knew what she had to do. And I, I found like these flashbacks really did the most for her character. Because I think, you know, from, from Theron's point of view, she's kind of a, a, a really bad mom, you know? <laughs> but oh, yeah. These flashbacks give you the insight as to the why she did what she did. And it, and it leads up to a tragic sense almost a shmi skywalker tragedy you know where i i know letting you go off and 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 go with this master is the best thing for you as much as i hate to do it i know it's what's best for you and i'm going to make that sacrifice but as we find out later she forgets to tell dear old dad and that kind of comes back on her yeah that makes for a great uh, exchange here now this is probably the most spoilerific thing in this episode that we're talking about here but it's an exchange that it so perfectly echoed The Empire Strikes Back, but did it in such a human sort of way. Such a less dramatic, but all the more human sort of way, that I think it would be almost uh, wrong of us not to include it, because it, it's such an important point um, of the tale. There's a point at which Jace has asked for a meeting uh, at his home, I believe it was, with Theron. And Theron's not really quite sure why he's why he's there. Um, he's met Jace Malcolm previously, but he's kind of like, oh, 
okay, you know, why am I here? And they start talking about Theron's background. And Jace says, but what about your father? Didn't you ever want to ask Satil about him? To which he replies, Theron replies, Master Joe was my father. He raised me, made me who I am. I'll skip the, the, the narration here. And then says, uh, Theron, I didn't know Satil had a son. I only found out a few days ago when I saw your name in the report and I asked the director if you were related. Theron's reply is, kind of wish he'd lied to you. Could have avoided this whole awkward chat. At which point he drops the bomb. He gave me your personnel file. I checked when you were born, confirming what I already suspected. Theron, I believe that I am your father. Father, father. And you would expect Theron to be kind of knocked back on his heels like, whoa, here. But there's just a, a brief silence, and his response is, I already told you, Master Zhou was my father. Uh, the, the conversation continues, you know, Theron, you have to believe that I had no idea. When Satil broke off our relationship, I thought it was because of the Jedi Order's ban against emotional attachments. I didn't realize she was pregnant. Um, and, the, the, again, Theron doesn't want to deal, so he essentially says, you know, Commander, I'm sorry she lied to you, but this is between you and her. You need to talk to Satil. I mean, it's sort of one of those, he has come to grips with who he is. Or at least he thinks he's come to grips with who he is and his place in the universe and everything. And this now kind of throws a wrench into the works. But it's not the, the typical thing you would expect of an over-emotional character who just can't deal with themselves, be like, no, that's not true, or oh my goodness, and kind of breaking down or anything. Instead, it causes him some inner turmoil, but he's still going to get the job done. You know, he still knows who he is. Well, you know, they can deal with all their emotional crap all they want, but as far as he's concerned, at least from what he thinks of himself at this point in time, he's already made his peace with all of this. You know, he already expected not to get a chance to meet his father, so... You know, finding out who it is, it's a void in his life that he has already essentially filled. If that was a hole, he's filled it up with concrete rather than filling it up with a person <laughs> at this point. He doesn't need it. Um, and it's cool to see the, the, the inner relations between those two throughout the story because you would think that it would be something overdone on the emotional level. And instead, they handle it like guys. You know, well, just like, yeah, yeah uh, 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 way to go there, uh, uh, son, you know, kind of stuff. Until they finally are in a position to be able to address it in a way that they're both comfortable with. I mean, that is such a guy thing. Uh, it's well, emotional next, turmoil. The next line that, that you didn't men, uh, mention, to me, it, it also plays up the fact that they both kind of turn it on on Satel. I mean, his next thing, he goes, that's the last thing I need right now, Chase replied. She lied to me, hid you from me. I'm so mad I wouldn't even know what to say to her. And, and I think that that for me was like they had a commonness in the fact that they were both very distrustful of his mother at that point, you know, she had lied to both of them. And so it gave him a common ground as well, you know, and, and I, I kind of saw that playing up as well. Cause you know, you know, Theron didn't want to address it. He didn't want to deal with it. And then after he leaves, they both start dwelling and thinking on it. Like, wait, what's, what's really happened here? You know? And it, it was a very cool moment. Would you, would you had mentioned, you know, there's a, I am your father moment. I, I immediately figured that it had to be him because I'm trying to think like, Okay, from what they've shown me, who could it possibly be the most obvious? And it it just seemed like Jace. Well, he was with her in most of the trailers. So I was like, okay, it's got to be Jace. They spent a lot of time together. And sure enough. But it was an interesting aspect how their relationship as a, as a mother and a father, as well as their positions in the Republic as leadership, kind of reminded me a lot of Han and Leia in the, uh, in the New Republic era when he was the, uh, first, the first husband. I kind of wanted to think, I mean, I, I, as sad as it is, you know, I was kind of thinking back and, and trying to picture all these things. And, you know, I have a very sort of visual way of thinking about it. So I tried to picture Satil in these scenes. You know, I try to visualize this. 
And it's funny that what, what popped into my head uh, was the question, you know, what got them involved with each other in the first place other than fighting alongside each other? And it stuck out, well, maybe what he likes is women who look different no matter what story they're in. <laughs> Isn't that Satil's kind of thing that she looks that, completely different depending on when you see her? Um, that is. The, and the age, she's an ageless character um, because it can't figure out what age to make her look. You know, okay, in our last episode, we'd mentioned about the fact that with all these super weapons and stuff and how it seemed to be a theme that Palpatine was using, when they finally show up to Reaver Station, the Sith Station that the Ascendant Spirit is supposed to be docking with, they have this little spot here. Uh, let's see, when they finally dropped from hyperspace, they had a clear view of Reaver Station. The massive spaceport was the size of a small moon. I was waiting for a, that's no moon! <laughs> but, it, and again, it struck me that the... the the similarity is the resonance of, of you know, the one saga to, to this and how, you know, they could tie to each other. And you could one say that while one is kind of borrowing from the other, it leads to the other to borrow from it again in the timeline sense of things. And I thought that that was kind of an interesting little play. It's like, once again, you know, Palpatine's great ideas kind of herald back to the old immortal Sith Emperor's plans. Yeah, and you also see echoes of sort of a modern day type of, again, sort of the spy thriller type thing as well, because once he's on the station, once he eventually makes his way towards the Ascendant Spear, it's not, you know, he's using the force to cloud people's minds. It's not even that he's stealing stormtrooper armor so nobody can see his face. He just got basically imperial looking clothes, and it's, it's you know, like they say in many spy novels and such, you know, pretend that you're supposed to be there, act like an arrogant jerk, as if you're supposed to be in charge. And those who are used to following orders will simply jump and do what you say and not question it until it's too late and you've been able to carry out your mission. Um, it, it's that great kind of thing where Carpetian, who really, I mean, what have we seen with Carpetian? Carpetian has done, you know, Sith stories, Jedi stories, right? We haven't really seen him do something that leaves behind all the Force use stuff to rely on those types of skills. And he makes great use of them. It makes me wonder... You know, did he do any extra research, for instance, into, say, uh, spy novels or spycraft, uh, CIA-type stuff, NSA-type stuff? Um, did he kind of step back and look for those types of skills, or are those things that he just had had in mind before? But you don't need to have a Jedi pretend to be in charge, because a Jedi can use the Force and make people believe he's in charge and such. Another dynamic here of the mother, father, and son, you know, Satyal, she tells him, him being Theron, that Jace was kind of leading towards darkness, and that was part of why she ended up having to leave him. She, she kind of goes through that with the flashbacks. But after they've got the Black Cypher, uh, Theron, he, he is, is asking about what happened at Ruan. What about reinforcements? Why were they too far away to get there in time? We, could, we should have scrambled some of our fleets. We couldn't, Jay said. The risk of tipping off the Empire was too great. If they found a fleet waiting for them on Ruan, they know we were intercepting their Cypher transmissions. Horror slowly dawned on Theron as he realized what Jace was saying. You knew the Empire would wipe out our ships at Ruan? You knew they'd bombard the planet? Thousands of civilians are dead, and you did nothing to help them? I had no choice, Jace told him, his voice cold. If we don't stop the Ascendant's fear, we don't stop this war. You're worried about thousands of innocent lives. I'm worried about millions. And then Theron's thinking what his mom had said. Jace fights this war out of fear. Or Jace fights this war out of revenge. It clouds his judgment. It can make him do terrible things if he believes they are necessary to save the Republic. And then later he goes, you know, he's, they continue their conversation. And again, Theron's thinking to himself, Satel was right about you. He thought, remembering her final argument, hate will transform you into the very evil that you are fighting so hard against. And I think that this is an underlying theme of what's at stake 
for the Republic throughout this war. I mean, the Cold War and everything, it's it's kind of left the, the, the good side embittered. You know, they're, they're sick of watching people die. They're ready to end this war. And they're starting to succumb to the dark side. And, uh, you know, it, it's it's subtle, but it's definitely playing throughout this book as well. Yeah, and they play that that out in the game to a degree also. I mean, uh, this whole idea of, of the choices, the tough choices that must be made within war, uh, the idea of the embitter, uh, the embittered nature of some of the soldiers. I'll tell you, in the trooper storyline for the game, um, I mentioned how your character is essentially rebuilding Havoc Squad um, and how it had been under Jet Carden, and then after all, everything that happened on Ando Prime, he hands it over to his XO, Heron Tavis, from Threat of Peace. Um, the beginning, the prologue, basically, of the Trooper storyline is Tavis and the other members of Havoc Squad at the time, uh, Gearbox, Fuse, Wraith, and Needles, they desert. And they are part of a huge movement of desertions from the spec forces that are going to the Empire. Because at least in their mind, the Empire knows how to treat its soldiers with respect, as opposed to the Republic Senate who's willing to abandon them based on, you know, money concerns and that sort of thing. So you got that embittered nature playing into some of the people that you actually wind up having to fight against, though not necessarily uh, kill all of them. And then the, the, the choices thing really comes back, not as much in the other ones it seems like, but especially in the Trooper storyline, because you've got a few moments where you have to choose between, you know, the death of one character versus the death of many. There's a character you're introduced to early on, Sergeant Ava Jaxo, uh, this female character, and... You become friends with this character off and on. You even at one point can share basically a drinking night with this character that makes you think, uh-oh, something bad's got to happen. Um, until finally you get to a point where there's a mission where you have to make the choice. You either save her. Uh, there's basically she's, there's this imperial prison called A-77, and she's been brought, captured and brought there, but she escaped. She was allowed to escape. It's a trap. Uh, she has escaped. And as Havoc Squad is trying to liberate this facility while the Empire is bombarding it, General Racton is attacking it, they have to make a choice. They either do what needs to be done, open a certain area to space, killing all those who are there, but in doing so, buy them enough time to free thousands, perhaps, of Republic prisoners, or they wind up abandoning the Republic prisoners, not sure if they can save them, and go try to save Jaxo herself, who is in that area that would be spaced. And you have to make that decision, lives of one versus lives of many. What really is the kick in the butt is by the time you get to the end of the Trooper storyline, uh, you're dealing again, General Racton is this this great military genius for the Empire. He's, he's masterminded most of their major campaigns against the Republic. And now, finally, after taking out the Gauntlet, after taking out his other groups, you've finally come face-to-face -face with him. I believe it's on Corellia. And you have a choice of essentially killing or capturing him. So the light side choice is to capture him, use him perhaps for intelligence. And what happens? As soon as you get back to the Republic, uh, Supreme Chancellor Leonine, or how do you say her name? Uh, what is it? Uh, Leontine Suresh, the new chancellor that becomes chancellor during the course of the game, um, basically says, you know, the Empire would probably trade thousands of POWs just for Rackton back, so we're going to make a trade. And it's like, Really? The deaths that you would get by putting this guy back into action balanced against the idea that we're going to just let him go and free these thousands of people. You know, where's the balance, not just between saving one life versus saving many, or the cost of a few lives versus the cost of many, but what happens when, in each case, the numbers are so huge that it makes any choice just a judgment call? And it leaves Havoc Squad and, and their commander, uh, General Garza, not all that happy 
by the time we get through the end of the third act of the Trooper tale. Uh, they do a real good job with the Republic military stuff in the game and the books of giving us those types of tough choices and showing us the impact of them on the characters. We don't get that very much, though, it seems, with the others, or at least not the other light side storylines of the game, because you don't get that type of moral choice with the Consular or with the Jedi Knight. i got to say... I think the Jedi Consular, at one point, the toughest moral choice I ran into, unless I'm just, you know, missing some of the big ones, except for just, you know, kill this character or not, was, do I tell the rest of the Jedi about these two Jedi Padawans who have a relationship? Yeah, certainly not anything on the scale of the type of thing Jace Malcolm was dealing with. <laughs> you know, there are a couple things here I'd like to hit real quick. Uh, one was the fact that Nagani Zo uh, shows up to Tefeth, uh, kind of like in these Force Vision dreams she's having. I thought that was kind of an interesting little playback. Uh, you know, I, I'd mentioned before about how uh, when Nos Dural gets captured and, and they put him in the torturing device, some of the things that he had, it was saying to himself, he's like, dwelling on the endless horror is another part of the torture. The Jedi reminded himself, stay calm, focus on what you need to do. The things like that that I really loved. But there was a moment when he kind of, when he first goes after the uh, Ascendant Sphere, when he fly, fights his way on, like he does the whole force burst, he takes off, and he's riding a turbo laser down and... uh it's all uh, at the last possible instant. The force granted him a sudden premonition of the lethal trap, pulling the green bladed lightsaber from his belt. He dropped to the ground, pressing himself face down flat on the floor as the turbo lift came to a stop on the sphere's lowest levels. Their guards blaster bolts shredded the turbo laser doors as they slid open, ricocheting over Nostral's head as they carved an arc at waist height. The Jedi responded by lashing out with the force, hurling four heavily armored soldiers several meters back down the corridor before they even hit the ground. He had sprung to his feet charging toward them as he threw his lightsaber sidearm. The spinning blade struck the nearest of his foes, slicing through the chest plate of his battle armor and into the vulnerable flesh beneath. The surviving three guards didn't try to regain their feet, instead firing wildly at him from where they lay sprawled on the floor. The Keldor angled his charge toward the sidewall, leaping and planting a foot halfway up the surface to give him leverage for a high, twisting spin that scraped the ceiling. His arms tucked in close to his chest and his horizontal... And his horizontal body perfectly parallel to the floor. When this chapter, I believe it's chapter 23, when this goes down, man, Drew just nails it. I mean, that was like one of the most exciting scenes. And it all, like, I was envisioning it so vividly. I was like, dude, I, I, I just, I don't know. I fell for this character so much. And everything from that point on with, with Dural, I just, he became a, a very quickly favorite of this era for me i mean so much so i'm kind of like man why is what's so great about satiel sean that she's the grand master of the order everything i've seen about her in this book leads me to say she doesn't really deserve that position aside from the fact that she gave up her son that's about the most i don't know the most well you know how she got the position right uh, slap her way to the top i'm not she, sure she found tython she is oh. the one who rediscovered tython and in doing so, so gave her enough for that yeah, it, make her the they governor give, they give or something. Awards for stuff like that. What they do to Gavi, Gavi and uh, Jory when they found the Sith? I mean, <laughs> oh yeah, but they kind of brought them back and and started the war. So, um, but no, that, that's what kind of puts her on, it propels her to being going towards being uh, uh, the youngest or one of the youngest uh, uh, grandmasters. But yeah, you're right. When it comes to the descriptive narration here, uh, Drew Carpetian in this book gives us some of the most vividly described and yet not overly verbose action sequences that we've seen in Star Wars novels in a while. And I think, again, it goes back to the whole idea that he had to do so 
to give us something realistic with Theron being able to be as skilled as he is. You know, how does he take them down if he doesn't have the Force? And that carries over also to Nostaral. Uh, it's one of those books where you want to make sure that you're not just doing the whole skimming, getting the gist of the narration and only focusing on the dialogue thing that sometimes people do with Star Wars books because a lot of times the narration can be overly verbose and kind of repeating some of the same things from time to time. I'm looking at you, Karen Travis. Um, um, but from the standpoint of the of uh, the narration in this one, solid, solid stuff when it comes to giving us action sequences. I Again, I think anybody who is not a player of the game, maybe hasn't read any of the other comics, even The Lost Sons, if you have an interest in this era, I think this is an easy book to get into and to really, really like. It's one of the best Star Wars novels in... And I, and I feel like I've, we've said that plenty of times with some of the Star Wars novels. We really are in a great era of Star Wars novel writing right now. Even Zahn is going to nail scoundrels out of the park, and Zahn hasn't done that since the Bantam era for me. <laughs> um, great, great book. You should definitely check it out if you have any interest in a Star Wars story that's not focused entirely on Jedi, but also doesn't completely leave Jedi and Sith out of the picture either. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. I, I like the pacing. By the time we get to the end, you know, you're in a chapter and it's bouncing from one point of view to another, to a third, to a fourth, and it's all playing well. And ne none of them are long enough that you're like, I need to get back to that other scene. I remember in early Bantam books that most of Leia or most of Leia and her politics, I was just like, ah, all right, let's skip to the battle. But this one, it, it it got moving, and once it started going, it was it was like riding a slide down a snowbank. I mean, it was a lot of fun. It was a good good trip down. Um, I don't know if I, if for me, it was better than deceived. I really like deceived a lot, but it's right up there. It's definitely one of the best of, of what we've been getting in this era. And I think if you've read the, the lost sons, this is a must read for you. You're going to get the most out of Theron Sean. If you like the character at all, this is the next progression for you. And if you've liked the, uh, the, the stuff that you've heard, uh, Nos Doral doing in the videos and stuff on YouTube and on starwars.com. Hey, this is a good chance to kind of find out what that character is about. I really enjoyed him. I thought he was a really cool character to uh, follow along in the story. And their their interactions played well. I kind of hope that these two get paired together in another book down the road. That's right. This should make for a good group of characters to have return in the future if they decide to continue on with uh, the Old Republic. Now, folks, remember, you can listen to our show airing on Middle Earth Network Radio, as well as streaming on the Star Wars Report website, StarWarsReport.com. Our episodes are also available right on our own Facebook page, Facebook.com slash SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. But no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. Not only can you post comments to us while you listen to the show, you might just be heard on our show. Each month, we'll release a feedback episode when we have enough to justify it, where we'll answer your emails and your messages from Facebook. So if you have something to say about an episode, fire it off at us. You can email us at SWBeyondFilms, yes, the same little phrase there, SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. So, once again, this has been Nathan Butler. And Mark Ann Whistler. Thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds. That Tepeth will ever speak in plain stinking English. Or basic. Or that they'll find a look for Satiel Sean that'll be permanent. Or that Jace Malcolm is going to wind up getting ticked off at, at uh, Theron and say, Who's your daddy? <laughs> <laughs>